Hey, everybody. This is Isaac. And um, we're interrupting our regular opening because we are wanted to record something about the Derek, Derek Chauvin verdict um, before we get to our guest this week, who is D.L. Mayfield. Stay tuned for a great interview. But because of some things going on where I live and where Brian lives, um, we just wanted to take some time to reflect on the Chauvin verdict and the response and those sort of things. Brian, why don't you start us off by talking about what you experienced in Minneapolis yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the caveat that I'm probably not the person that needs to need to needs to speak to this. Uh, there's a lot of other people out there, but you know, I it was, I mean, obviously it was tense, right? There's lots of kind of tension. There's a lot of uh, fear and anxiety, and I'm not talking about the business owners who have had uh, plywood on their doors for the past. Two weeks, uh, and in anticipation that, or the you know sense of, or the you know military occupation that's been taking uh, you know in our very dangerous neighborhood that we live in, um, you know. So it, it's, I just think there's been a general kind of sense of like, you know, in the in the for some of my black friends of like I, I have no I have no you know I have no faith in this, so I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna worry about it one way or another. And then a lot of my white friends who are having you know. I think experiencing their their first kind of uh, exposure to some of this stuff, and so there was a lot of anxiety around that. And you could just you could just feel it. I, I decided I was going to uh, skip work and skip class and just go downtown and kind of hang out uh, and be just present. Um, and I was down at the courthouse right before the um, right before the verdict was uh, handed down, and went then went to George Floyd Square. And you know the thing that I think I most appreciated is. You know, in the Episcopal Church, we're, we're really big about talking about like beloved community. This idea of like that's what we're working towards. And when you went into the um, when you went into what they are what they call um, uh, the Free State of George Floyd or George Floyd Square, that's like beloved community in action, right? So it's like it's people in the community right there taking care of one another. They're not letting the police come into that area uh, no matter what happens. Uh, it's you know there's it's it's mutual aid happening in real time and i think you know as for me who's definitely an outsider in that community uh to kind of experience that it was like oh this is what this is what the church is and should be doing but they're not and instead these people have just decided to take this on and make this uh place a component of you know what radical justice and uh, mutual aid is going to look like, and and it was just it was just a really powerful thing. I, I kind of tried to stay to the outside because again, you know, the white guy showing up at the last second—that's as cliche as it kind of gets. But there was just a sense of you could just feel this a sense of relief across everything like that for this one moment. Even we can just we can just have a little bit of joy in this just one moment, and that was kind of the that was it for I think for most of the crowd. There was just this idea that. This is a trickle of of the justice uh, that you know. If you're going to talk about the the waters flowing down, this is a little bit of a trickle, and uh, but that's a starting point. Um, and you know, that was followed by some truly awful takes, which we can get into in a minute by some uh, white politicians. But you know, for that for that you know four or five six hours that I was out there, it was like, all right, this is this is this feels good, even if it's even if it's back to work tomorrow. So that that was kind of my experience. I'm exhausted. By it. And so I can't imagine what, you know, our BIPOC, you know, friends and family members are, are feeling, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of had the choice to kind of opt into that exhaustion, but it was still exhausting just to kind of ride the roller coaster of it for the day. Well, it's funny you say, like, get back to the work of justice tomorrow. Didn't even 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the joy and the hope kind of didn't even last an hour because right. then we heard about the police killing of Akia Bryan in Columbus, Ohio. And, um, you know, at the same time in Knoxville right now, we are trying to get transparency and answers about what happened to Anthony Thompson Jr., a uh, black teenager that was shot by the cops in the bathroom of a local high school last week. And, um, you know, the latest update on that is that he had been fighting with his girlfriend and his girlfriend's white mom called the cops and sent them to the high school and they killed him. Um, and, you know, the city will not release the body camera footage of what happened. So we still don't, you know, at first they tried to come out and say that he had shot a cop. So one of the other cops shot him. And then it turned out that, oh, just kidding. Um, the cop was shot either by himself or one of the other cops. We still don't know because we don't have the footage. Um, so yeah, they, they immediately tried to play him off or portray him as the aggressor and, um, all, you know, and then had to backtrack on that. And uh, there were some protests here, but, you know, there's still a lot of, a lot of questions to answer about just the basic facts of, of why and how he was killed. And then on top of that, um, the most cursed response from the school board was, we need to add more school resource officers to this high school. And then on top of that, they made the students go back to school today so they could take the state standardized testing uh, at the appointed time. So, um, fuck standardized tests and um, fuck the KPD. But, you know, it, it's just... The thing that killed me is I, I I was listening to the the coverage of the verdict on NPR, which is so cursed. But the things that I heard before we got the verdict were they cut to a journalist for NPR who covers law enforcement to find out how cops were... Um, I, I just put cops in air quotes for the listeners and I have no clue why. <laughs> um, what, like how cops were reacting to the trial... And then they cut to someone who was out in the um, Minneapolis suburbs talking about the fear in the uh, white community about potential backlash and property damage. Uh So if you are still out there listening to NPR all the time, please stop. It's straight propaganda. It is like... Subscribe and rate today. (laughs) Well, it's just like a daily dose of like white fragility in your ear but they like make it liberal enough to make you feel good about it. It's just horrible. So uh, anyway, um, I can't remember. I, I can't remember the takes that, that are coming on this episode, but this might be the best one. Uh, you might've just topped whatever takes we came up with in the previous one. It's like, stop listening to NPR. It's liberal propaganda. Is this <laughs> Marvel, NPR, KPD? They're all out. I, I do. I do want to just say not to joke about this too much, but you putting air quotes around cops is wonderful because it's like you've already gotten rid of them they've already <laughs> they've already been gone in your mind it's just like cops that idea of cops <laughs> i've abolished the cop in my head yes right um, yeah i mean i cj is there anything else you want to you want to add to this um well since this is coming out i'm on sunday i'm sure that lots of people have already covered this but there have been some truly horrible takes by public officials about 
like calling George Floyd a martyr or calling his death a sacrifice. And I just want to make it really clear that martyrdom implies um, a choice and that at any point you could save yourself by denouncing something like your faith. And George Floyd was murdered by the state, but he was not a martyr. There was nothing he could denounce that would make Derek Chauvin change his course of action. And I think it's really, as white people, if you are not talking about the cross and Black people, like within the specific context of like James Cone's work in the cross and the lynching tree, like if we're not talking about it in really specific context, like we have, white people have to be really careful not to make Black death into martyrdom because it is not, I mean, like it's not a sacrifice. Like he, he, George Floyd didn't die for anything except white supremacy. Like he didn't, he should be alive right now. He was like at the gas station buying it, buying soda or whatever. Um, and so I've just seen some really, truly terrible comparisons there. And I want to make that connection clear since we're recording this all special. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi, uh, noted liberal Nancy Lepose, uh, Pelosi, uh, you know, thanks George Floyd for sacrificing your life for justice. And it's like, stop. And then Jacob Frey, the mayor, came out with something equally horrendous. It's like these guys, these people don't. I mean, I don't think any of us are shocked that they don't get it. Like they're 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 really no different. These are upper echelon elite, you know, rich white people. So of course they don't get it. But it's just like, yeah, if there's somebody, uh, Jay, uh, uh, Isaac, you called her a ghoul, and it's like, oh, that's the perfect word, right? Like it's just ghoulish behavior, like that stuff. They just don't even care that they don't get it, and and they'll this will they'll still slide right off of them, and they'll just you know basically win another election. Anyway, I'm cynical. We're starting out the episode cynical, so great. Go ahead, Isaac. Well, I cut you off. Well, the, I think the last part I. I want to make is something that Biden said in his speech last night, which was he said he started off by acknowledging something that I was actually shocked to hear him say, which is it feels like it took a global uprising to get to this verdict. But then he ended his speech by saying there's never any excuse for property violence or damage. And it's just like, okay, there were police death, like police killings all over the United States in 2020. And we got a guilty verdict in the trial of a cop in the one place where a police precinct burned. So if you don't think the property damage got us to that guilty verdict, then you know, you're probably listening to uh, the white suburban correspondent on NPR. But still, <laughs> it's just like without property damage and without... Minneapolis, like basically becoming a war zone, and then people in multiple countries around the world rising up. All of that got us accountability for one cop. There have been 15,000 police shootings since 2005, and Derek Chauvin is the seventh cop total to be charged and indicted with a crime out of those police shootings. And then the other thing about it is just Minneapolis having like a gun pointed to its head by the National Guard, you know, sort of just awaiting their own violence, like state violence to fall down on them if he had been ruled not guilty. So it's just, it's wild um, to think that, you know, please, you know, protesters, y'all are the violent ones. Please be peaceful when we've got tanks rolling down the streets of Minneapolis and Brooklyn Center and like just fascism rampant in the treatment of protesters and media alike after um, the murder of Dante Wright. So it, it's just, we just have to like 
tear back the mask of like who's peaceful, who's violent. You know, it's ridiculous for Biden to a suggest that without the property violence we saw last year that we would have gotten to this point. And then secondly, to basically occupy Minneapolis with the military and say, y'all better be peaceful. Like, fuck off. And occupy, the places they occupied are, you know, the bougie grocery store that I shop at, admittedly, you know, police stations, uh, targets, stuff like that. So yeah, so if you had, and this was a great conversation I had with my son. He's like, why are they here? I was like, because police protect property, son. That's all. So anyway, and, and that's, they don't protect people because if they wanted to protect people, they wouldn't be in those places. They would be in the places where to stop stuff like that's been happening anyway. Um, yeah, so we just wanted to share with this. We just wanted to talk about it to at least address it. Uh, admittedly, as three white people uh, kind of weighing in on something. But I, I think, Isaac, you're right when you said it's something that there was a worldwide uprising ar- around this. And, and for me, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm trying to be hopeful um, and hold some hope where maybe other people can't that this is the start of something. Um, but yeah, uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we'll talk to you all later. Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. This is Isaac. I'm back. <laughs> Hell yeah. Back, back with a vengeance. Yeah, we, nice we tried to punk Isaac when he wasn't here last week and say he got canceled, but showed up anyway. He found the Zoom link. And today we are joined by uh, D.L. Mayfield. D.L., do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, I'm very excited to be here. I write as D.L. Mayfield. My name is Danielle Mayfield, and I'm a writer, I guess. Sort of in the Christian world. And my newest book is The Myth of the American Dream, which came out during a global pandemic, which is interesting. Yeah. We, before he got on, we were talking about Twitter. And it was like, we should be recording this. Two of us are off Twitter. One of us, at least myself, is, uh, is constantly agonizing over Twitter, whether I'm going to get canceled by uh, the YA people who I love. So don't cancel me, YA authors. Uh, and, then, and then CJ... Uh, he is just. There, I'm impervious to cancellation. Just a different breed, like bulletproof. Sorry, Twitter bulletproof. CJ has emerged impervious. <laughs> yes. Soon this podcast will only be CJ. Um, <laughs> just all the rest of us are just going to be gone. So, um, but yeah, we were, we were talking about Twitter, and uh, Danielle, you said you had some questions uh, that you wanted to bring up. That already, I'm terrified to to talk about this, but let's go. Yeah. Should we Should we talk about Twitter a little bit? So I got off Twitter a few weeks ago, which because I need a sabbatical from the internet. So I've been like an online Christian person for about 10 years now. That's like a decade of scrapping with people. I just, at this point, I'm like, you know, I've tried. I've tried my darndest. Uh, It's not working. And I need to reassess my relationship to social media. Now, a part of me had this really funny plan, which was... There is a Christian agent who is a a lovely person, but they tell people like, you need a platform of 20,000 followers before you can get a book deal in the Christian world. And this is something they say publicly a lot of times. So I was just sitting there looking at my Twitter followers and I was like, the second I get to 20,000, I'm deleting this motherfucker. Like I'm (laughs) going to do it. And that's what I did. And it feels great. Um, I do have to decide if I want to like come back to it and just check in once a month to keep my account or if I really want it gone, gone. So that's what I'm thinking about. But Brian, you had mentioned that you have deleted your account permanently and you're also like... You just had to get off YA Twitter. And I've heard some chatter that YA Twitter has some similarities to Christian Twitter. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk about that. 
I don't. Uh, but since we're here, <laughs> um, no, I, you know, if, here, here's the thing is like the, the interesting connection is that I think on both ends, Twitter can be a really powerful thing. Like, so one of the things I, I do appreciate about YA Twitter is that they just don't, they don't deal with bullshit. They just don't. Um, and, you know, and that can get taken down some many different roads uh, and happen. And, and, you know, and so like one of the things that I appreciate about the people who I actually enjoy following on Christian Twitter are the ones that don't see it as much as a platform building, but they see it as, as a, would I be as grandiose to call it prophetic, but uh, I don't know, but like a way of being able to kind of like witness. I mean, Danielle, you're, you're a perfect example of this, right? Like somebody, I like following people who challenge me. Uh, who are who come from different places from me, but are also you know in that same progressive kind of wing of of how we think about faith. So you know, for me, YA Twitter and Christian Twitter are the same in that you're going to have people that are on there who are just on there to um, basically promote. They don't give a crap about anybody else. All they're there is to try to get clicks, try to get likes. There are certain priests out there who I won't name. Who um, <laughs> CJ knows what I'm talking about. Uh, the real heads know. Uh, who are just on there, and it's like all they're there is, is for that kind of like constant like affirmation, which fine, if that's what you need, fine. But don't pretend that it's a ministry, right? Like you're not on there for a ministry. You're on there to kind of get your own ego going. And the YA Twitter is the same way. There's a lot of people who are just on there because that's they've they've learned that that's how you build a brand. You have people who are not there for like relationships. And this sounds so hokey, but like to me, that's that's the thing that I I like actually is I like actually getting to know people, like building relationships. And then if we both are successful, like everybody's more successful than me on YA Twitter. <laughs> but it's like if we are both successful, then we have a relationship that's not based on the fact that I need you to help me advance my career. But instead, I know you, I like who you are. Let's let's kind of talk. Amusingly, Danielle at Fe Festival of Faith and Writing two years ago, three, I don't remember when the last one was, I saw you and I was like, I know her. I don't really know her. So should I go talk to her or it was going to be weird? And I, I, I decided not to um, because it's like, but it's like, wow, again, it's, yeah. yeah, I know. But it's one of those things of like, I think there's a powerful way for Twitter to kind of create relationships that can actually affect and tra change the world. Again, grandiose, perhaps. Or it can be. I'm a TikTok priest and I am going to, I'm going to Damn. just. Okay. okay. Well, you may as well say it now. I know. I need to know now. No, we all know. You just, you just. I don't know. I just think there's certain people who. Yeah. There's just certain people out there who are, who are not in it. In my thing, they're in it only for the self kind of aggrandizing and it, and they, but they pretend like it's a ministry. And I, I just don't, I don't have any patience for that shit. It's, Cause it's, it's not both. Like, it just isn't. So anyway. Well, okay. Can I ask a question? Because this is like where I am at, right? <laughs> this is you, where I'm getting canceled. You can turn easily. Like what's to stop me from turning into that, right? By thinking I have something important to say and I have a right to say it because I've built up this platform. I'm just really, really skeptical of that. And for me, like writing my last book, I knew it was going to be probably my last book for white evangelicals. I was going to ask them to consider some of the ways their values actually harm the common good, right? And I just thought, okay, I know what I'm doing and I want to connect and I want to unsettle. Those are the two words that were like in my head, like as a writer, right? I want to connect and unsettle. And I try to do that on social media too. But there comes a point where there's just so much baggage that you're unable to... I, I think unsettling is easier, but truly connecting gets harder and harder for me. And I don't know why that is. That is something I need to assess because without that connection piece, it's gross. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> it is. gross. Yeah. Well, I, do, do, do you either? Sorry, yeah, I just, I wanted to jump in because it took us 
all of like 30 seconds to get straight into uh, the psyche of, of Brian. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the state of I love it. I love in. it. I just love it. <laughs> I, the, the funny thing is, is like, I actually, I was thinking about this the other day. I actually don't. Like I, I, at this point in my life, I am so just like, I don't care. So I don't know if it's like a shtick or whatever it is. Maybe it's just like getting on mic. I'm just like, oh God, this is going to live forever. Like an Apple iTunes. But like, I don't feel that way on Twitter anymore. And then, like, I don't know if either of you two have thoughts before I start going another, like, <laughs> anxious scree. Uh, did you, either of you have thoughts about what Daniel just said before I continue? I mean, I think that part of my issue with Christian Twitter, especially when it comes to the evangelical sort of side of things, is that it's like this constant game of having to, like, define yourself in opposition to whatever someone from that world says. So it's like this reactionary wave. Someone tweets... 2,000 other people tweet about like why whatever that one tweet was wrong. And it goes past this like, you know, there's a difference between like it's fun to dunk on really bad tweets to like, oh, now I have to, um, I don't know, not only like they're like people think that they're in the posting wars, like they've been drafted as a soldier <laughs> for the good in the posting wars. And it's their duty to post against these people so that folks won't read them or won't like believe them or they I don't know I just to me it just becomes this all like kind of like reifying whatever your own thing is in opposition to the people who are unlike you so like whenever you know Russell Moore some shithead evangelical tweets it's like Shane Claiborne and his group have to like tweet against it and then like everybody gets into a battle and like Duel of the Fates from Phantom Menace is playing. (laughs) So I mean, it's just like, and I think it does have a really weird, it is driven in a lot of ways, I think, by people who are coming out with books. So maybe what I'm trying to say is that it's author's fault or that it's publisher's fault. (laughs) Well, hold on a second. I I feel like there's a circuit of very popular Twitter progressive and evangelical Christian personalities who are like, really drive this discourse in service of like, you know, getting the word out there about their work, which is tough that that's kind of what it comes to. But I don't know, if you look at like who the major heads are on both sides of these factions, all of them have like book announcements in their Twitter bios. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, let me, I, I like that because I think that that you're 100% right. But actually like bringing this back to, to you, Danielle, that's one of the things that I appreciate about you on Twitter is the fact that it's like, it's very obvious to me that you're about it, right? Like that you're actually living it and what, what you're actually talking about. And, you know, I don't know if I can pinpoint a time. There's certain accounts where all they do is talk about the book that's coming out or the next thing that they're doing. It's just like, I unfollow. I'm not interested in that. And so for me, you know, like that connection, it comes through, like to me, it's like, if you're going to write anyway, like I always tell the kid, the students, the kids, Jesus, they're all like 30. The students in my MFA program, that's like youth minister vibes happening right there. Uh, But the, (laughs) hey kids, uh, here to talk about Jesus. No, anyway, but it's like, I always tell the students in my MFA program, like if you are going to like, chase publishing as, as something that you want to do, you, you're inherently, it's inherently an arrogant thing anyway, because you're saying, I have something to say to the world. And so like, I think if you can balance that arrogance on Twitter with like saying like, yeah, but here's a way of doing this and like being faithful and Christian, that's not gross and not predatory and might change somebody's mind. Like to me, I think that's worth being on there for. Like I have people all the time, this is going to sound so bad, but people reach out to me all the time and are, are like, I like what you have to say, you know, about Christianity. It's, it's, I've never heard stuff like that before. I, I, 
feel free to comment on that. But in the YA world, especially where it is very, very, very liberal, the, the most of the exposure they have to Christianity is by the very, very evangelical, very, very right wing, nasty kind of stuff that's out there. And so for my like thing of like straddling both of those worlds is to be able to be like, yeah, but here's somebody who's very loudly and publicly Christian, but also believes in the same stuff that you all believe in. And so I, I don't know, that might be arrogant, but I think that there is a way of connecting with people in that way and, and not making it turning yourself into where all of a sudden you're like, hey, here's my next social media thing that I'm hoping goes viral. So um, people will come to my church. Like there's a difference there between those two, two different things, I think. Thoughts? I just it's want you to come back on Twitter, of... Danielle, because I enjoy I didn't know I didn't know you left. And now I'm just like, oh, yeah, I have not seen her on there before. So this is just my pitch to get you back on Twitter. Well, I, I kind of want to hear what CJ has to say. Yeah. And then and then maybe I'll circle back to, to say. Oh, no, it's just, it's honestly kind of funny to hear this because it's also just like, it's Twitter, like everybody chill out. But I got on Twitter in 10th grade to watch the most chaotic member of my softball team have like a breakdown online because <laughs> she'd broken up with her boyfriend and I was just invested uh, because we spent like a lot of time together playing softball. And so it's just <laughs> recent events in my life have made, have like forced my online world <laughs> into my <laughs> real life. And that's very strange because obviously I make friends online that are now my real life friends, but I've never, I've never really seen Twitter as a vehicle for connection, even though I, I follow people who post very seriously about theology. Like, I mean, I use it for shit posts. <laughs> and, Amen. <laughs> and so I just think it's such a, it's such a weird line to walk. Um, Maybe it's not good. I think it's bad for my brain, honestly. Oh, it definitely <laughs> is. I don't think I there's just, any doubt that. Yeah, me I, too. I do just want to clarify for the li listeners that, you know, Brian was talking about the arrogance of having a Twitter account. Podcasting, on the other hand, <laughs> is an act of humility <laughs> and self-sacrifice for the good of right. the people. But, We're doing this because we hate ourselves and we just want to serve. So yeah. Just to make that clear, podcasting, not podcasting is very dying humble. to self. I mean, but yes, does, it, is, a, it is cruciform. Does a podcast <laughs> exist if, if one is not able to tweet about it? So, I mean, there, there's a, there's a, that's like one of those, uh, yeah, something you got to consider. So, yeah. I am wondering if the only point of, like, the point of connection between YA Twitter probably is, uh, between YA Twitter and Christian Twitter probably is just extreme right wing stuff because, I mean, like right-wing Christians are trying to get YA books banned yeah. all the time. Well, oh God, do I want to say this? Fine, I'm going to say it. There's a purity test too that happens on both ends of progressive Christianity and in YA sometimes, a purity test of how pure is your belief. And Isaac, it goes back to a lot of times what you were saying about that retweeting things, piling onto things, where at some point it's just like, I have nothing to add to this. But there has been times in both camps where people are like, well, why, why, why hasn't such and such? I, I see that you haven't commented on this. And it's like, I don't know if it's my job. This is where it becomes like, is, is there an obligation to comment on every single thing, ever Twitter, like, you know, kerfuffle that happens to comment on it and to just register your vote as, yep, still card carrying member of leftist progressive. Because what happens a lot of times on both sides, and I'm just going to say the Christian side to be safe. Uh, on the Christian side, it's like, I don't know that you all actually believe this stuff. I think you're just retweeting it because you know that you're supposed to or that you see it and it comes down. Like, I, I feel like you see it time and time again with people who get called out for being racist or sexist or homophobic homophobic, it's like they've, they've walked the party line for years. But then when it really comes down to like having to state how you believe and think, if they get attacked even in the slightest, 
it all unravels. And then they all of a sudden show up in the in acne, <laughs> right? They're all of a sudden they're putting the acne priest or something like that. Um, so that's 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 part of it for me. Is just like I don't know. There's there, there seems to be a shallowness of belief a lot of times on progressive Christian Christianity side because again, it is just it's just that retweeting and liking it. It doesn't have actually have anything about discipleship or like building like actual theological or political opinions. I don't know. I might be wrong on that, but. This 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 might be the episode that gets me canceled because I I'm primed I'm I'm ready to go I drank my I drank my I'm five so, hour energy drink right I'm beforehand. sorry I brought this up but I do think we need to be talking about this more I truly do because I think we all need to take some time to assess how we engage in social media and we all know that there's benefits and we all know there's drawbacks and if we're not going to truly take the time to like interrogate what those are like it is going to get out of control so for me my Twitter account became something unhealthy for me. You know, when I started writing 10 years ago, I did not have an anxiety disorder. I'm not saying Christian publishing gave me an anxiety disorder, but I'm not not saying that either, you know? It's like <laughs> I it's it's terrifying to put yourself out there to uh and you know, I get I don't equate all pushback the same. I don't, you know, none of that. I, I'm not willing to say that, but I will say I've become pretty jaded in the past year with progressive Christianity uh, when it comes to platform and publishing. It's just the exact same thing with a few liberal beliefs tacked onto it. And I think that's what's been really disheartening for me as we're all trying to sort of grapple with our upbringings, grapple with white Christian nationalism, looking for hope in certain places. I'm like, you know what? That's not it. So for me, you know, Twitter became an unhealthy place. I still kind of like Instagram. I follow a lot of like community organizers on there. And my Facebook is literally just mostly formerly refugee friends. So it's really fascinating to see like the different worlds and Twitter increasingly became very disconnected from my real life. Mm. So that's, I think, a part of my decision. And Brian, if I went back on, I would just... I would have to rein it in a bit. I would have to mostly post about what I'm publishing just because the level of vitriol and the level of engagement, I'm just not capable of doing at that point. So we don't have to talk about this anymore. At the same time, all of y'all are sort of invested and involved in in the Christian world and, and social media is a huge part of that. And I'm just like, something is wrong. We've been doing this like CJ, I can't believe it's 10th grade for you. <laughs> I, know, I'm not I used even... to feel very old, but you know, like for me, 10 years was the perfect time to say, I have got to assess this and not just keep going business as usual because Nelly, we need our actual lives to be impacted by the garden fire hose of information we're, we're consuming at all times. Well, and let me just yeah, say I, too, that it is, I, sorry, I need a caveat that, that it's easy for me to say that because I'm a straight white dude who doesn't have the platform that you have and I can I can talk shit and I can be loud and people aren't usually going to come at me like they are going to come at you and have come at you. I've seen it. Um, and so just caveat there that I, I do realize that you know it, it was all uh, selfish that I enjoy seeing your posts. So I'll just follow you on Instagram. It'll be fine. I do just want to point out like one example that still rattles around in, in my head is like a perfect sort of sample of Twitter sickness. Uh, in reference to something that, that we've already said, but just like people constantly being asked to sort of make their opinions known on things or like denouncing them if they need to be. Last summer during the Black Lives Matter protests, there was, you know, people started sharing how tear gas is uh, something that can like basically cause miscarriages in pregnant women. 
And I think I'm going to say this wrong. So that's why I avoided saying it that last sentence. But like, it's it, there was this line on Twitter and social media tear gases in a Bordeaux fashion, I think is the way you say it. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, whatever. But someone tweeted at Liz Brunig like 30 times in a two day span. By the way, Liz Brunig, probably one of the most controversial people on Twitter just for simply existing. They tweeted at her like 30 times asking her if she was pro-life to denounce tear gas because it causes abortions. And she finally was like, yeah, I don't like tear gas. So is that like, does that help? <laughs> just, just like one of the most insane things that, that I think perfectly kind of sums up that, that dynamic on Twitter. But I, I do think that I might have a segue into... Please DL into your book <laughs> here, but I think part of the issue with social media and with Twitter that that kind of creates this negative atmosphere is, and that I think your book has a the myth of the American dream has a lot to say about is just like our need, our desperate need to start collect like to start cultivating a collective imagination, like just beyond the sort of individualism that dominates the way we interact in community that I think the pandemic in a lot of ways sort of exacerbated by keeping us from ha- having communal experiences. But, you know, I was, I've been reading uh, the collected works of Miriam Kaba, the We Do This Till We Free Us about prison abolition. And in it, she just talks about why she's not, you know, why she's not on social media much because she, specifically as an attempt for her to like build that collective notion of herself rather than this sort of individualistic um, view of the self that we are taught to create as Americans. So I, I wonder if you see any comparisons there, Dio, with some of, the, some of the parts of your book where you're casting like a hopeful vision of collective work. Hmm. Yeah, I think one thing, like I sort of already shared about it, just the differences of my social media and, and recognizing like none of my neighbors uh, are on Twitter, right? It, at least in the ways that I'm aware of in the worlds that I'm aware of. And so for me, that's always like a huge point. Like I just... I just decided to sign up for our school district's oversight committee because, you know, uh, you know, budgets are moral documents. I'm really invested in like getting police officers out of our schools, using that money to fund social workers, all that stuff. And even in that setting, like it's on Zoom and it's like really, it's just like the most structured meetings I've been in in a really long time. And I'm just like, yeah, I can do this because... I'm a stay-at-home mom who's college-educated and can just do this on a whim. But like, none of my neighbors for whom English is a second language, like the meeting would be so over their head, they would not feel welcome. You know, so they're really not invited into this budget process. This is supposed to be a community thing, right? And my community is mostly made up of people of color, mostly immigrants and refugees, and yet, you know, the budget oversight committee is all white people for our school district. When I would say it's at least 85% kids of color going there. And so kind of making those connections to social media, it's like, I want my life, my actual life to mirror my neighborhood. I do think that for me, the pandemic has just been devastating because I worked really hard. And a part of this was coming from my Christian identity. I worked really hard to invest in my neighborhood, right? To make sure I'm doing things local. I'm sending my kids to my school. like. My thriving is tied to the thriving of my neighbors, most of whom are women who did not have access to education in their own communities and we're doing English classes and stuff here. The pandemic just 
devastated all of that. Then I think I got a little bit more on social media. I bet a lot of us, you know, in the past year or so have just really found ways to connect via social media. Now as things, things are not going back to normal, but as, you know, I have the vaccine, as, as things are moving towards, like my kids are starting to go back to school, I think we have to, again, keep in our minds, like what is actually going on in our neighborhoods? What is actually going on in our real life? And how could we integrate those two better? So I don't have any answers. I'm just saying the questions are there in my mind all the time. And it's never a bad practice to say, okay, who's not here? Who am I not listening to? You know, and the reason I follow, I mean, I followed amazing people on Twitter, people that I don't have access to in my neighborhood, right? And um, you know, I just think about me being sort of isolated in my space, like to have access to marginalized communities, feeling free to be honest on the internet has been a gift, you know, and I never want to say that that's not true. And so I, I want to hold it all in balance. At the same time, I need that gift to impact me in my actual life in my neighborhood. So maybe that's a part of the collectivist imagination. I just know there's so much wealth and wisdom in communities that don't get platforms and, you know, they've enriched my life and I want them to be able to enrich other people's lives. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for all of that. Um, and I mean, you are a person with a platform and in your books, in your two books, you're, you're really focused on your neighbors and your work with refugees. Um, I think a pretty doing a pretty good job of platforming your neighbors in a way that doesn't, you know, like, I don't know, white Christians can get so exploitative <laughs> of like <laughs> of people of color in so many situations. But like your, your, your entire writing project is, is usually about your neighbors and the work that you do really rooted in your community. But uh, one thing that I've noticed in your work over the course of the pandemic is that there's been some shifts. Um, you've written several articles about abuse in churches and the power dynamics in churches. And I'm wondering if like was part of that because you were not able to be in your community and you were noticing things about about the church that you didn't have time to look at before? Or was that kind of a natural progression of your, the other work that you've been doing? Yeah, I... I think you're the first person that's ever noticed that, CJ. So thank you. I Well, I'm, I'm a stan. <laughs> <laughs> um, a friend stand. Okay, so I I have been writing abuse for the past few years. It didn't just start with the pandemic. Like I, I think if you look up what I've written for Sojourners, it's really weird. It's like, why did she write about a Michael Jackson documentary? And why did you know like? But it's because it's about abuse, and it's not about abuse and abusers, but it's about enablers. And I'm really, really obsessed with this idea of what makes someone an enabler of abusive actions and behaviors. Because I have seen, you know, with the Me Too and Church Too movements, I think we're seeing great progress. And yet at the same time, it's still being done in that sort of Twitter way of like, see, I'm calling out this person. I'm not a part of the problem. And that just really makes me feel disheartened because I'm like, no, like all of us have the potential to enable abusers, right? If, especially if we're tied somehow to an institution or something that our identity is tied to, our faith is tied to. Um, And most of me writing about this just comes from personal reasons because abuse is a a part of my husband's story. And so through that work, I've started to think a lot about enablers and how 
they're just as damaging as abusers. So I'm really, I'm really intrigued about Christianity. What makes Christians more likely to enable abuse? And it's just this really toxic combo of, uh, right, narcissistic people being, uh, you know, very attracted to a patriarchal leadership model plus them tying their success to the work of the gospel and the work of the church. And so all this spiritual pressure that's then put on Christians to not speak up about abuse, to not ruin the work of the kingdom and the gospel. And, and to me, it's just absolutely enraging to see that confluence. And so I've been, I've been on a little bit of a tear, just, just wanting to talk about enablers. And I think that's you know a part of why I'm just feeling pretty pretty dunzo with the whole thing is, is because this is not just a conservative Christian problem. It's absolutely present in progressive Christian spaces. And I just, I, I just, to be really honest, I'm just in a spot of like, I don't, I don't know how to move forward in, in Christian spaces when abuse just continually is covered up and ignored. Um, And I'm not even someone who has a personal history of abuse. I can't imagine what it would feel like as a survivor to just see this stuff over and over again and just see people rewarded financially, you know, emotionally, like social media platform wise, just these people continue to benefit and not just like benefit, but flourish. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm getting upset. (laughs) That's what I was trying to get at before this idea that you know, the one that I always bring up is is the people who will uh, retweet and kind of foster relationships with people who are a part of, you know, ACNA because they have a popular book out and they know that that book and that blurb from that book can help them in their publishing career. And so they kind of just wink, wink and, and sidestep some of the stuff. And it's like, you're like you said, you're complicit in that when you're, when you're doing that stuff is when you're not calling it out, whether it's abuse or being a part of a homophobic denomination, whatever it is, it's like for the for if you're doing it just so the fact that you can kind of have that kind of connection and maintain that connection for publishing reasons or for uh, reasons of just trying to to move forward in a church career, it's just like you've lost the plot already. And those those are the people that I'm kind of like talking about, and that's in the church world. The YA world doesn't really well; they probably do, but I don't I don't have as much experience seeing that in that in that world as uh, as much as in the church world. So yeah, yeah, and just the example you gave, it's like those are all things that allow enabling to happen, right? Yep. You have a connection through your publisher or maybe you'll be at a conference with this person in two years. You know, like that's what keeps people silent. And I think, you know, just in my own, maybe I'm having a giant hissy fit. I don't know, but I'm just like, I went out. I went off this train. I don't. But again, that could be my own like internal purity code thing too, right? If I delete everything, if I never do anything again, then I'll be a good white person, right? So all of this is very complicated, needs to be interrogated. And I could just sense myself really wishing there was an easy answer to it. And there's not one. And also, you know, sometimes do y'all get tired of just the constant vigilance of, of trying to call out the stupidness of white Christians? Like maybe I'm just tired and, and people need breaks and people need creativity. You know, I, at least know for Brian and CJ, like creative writing is a part of your lives. Like, does that sort of help you stay in the game? Like, I'm just, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts. And of course, Isaac, you can jump in too. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to just <laughs> call out the people I know. He may have shown up on the podcast. That doesn't mean we're going to acknowledge him. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> no, whatever. I, I do nothing creative because I don't write. That's it. It's the only way to be creative. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I did have a thought and now it's left my mind. So I'll have to come back. But I just wanted to point out 
I just wanted to drop one little nugget. I hope it doesn't take us down a rabbit trail. But ACNA announced a couple weeks ago that they're officially trying to plant a church in Charlottesville. And uh, they've hired like a priest to do it. And the guy's can't name... engage. Oh, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> CJ. Triggering the shit out of you. And the, and the guy's first name is Bliss. Anyway, so I just couldn't... I uh, Too many connections to the pod now oh, to bring it up. God, yeah. Unrelated. <laughs> just putting it out there. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to that in the future. <laughs> yes. But since you brought it back now, I just had to share it. But back to Danielle's thing. No, but I, I mean, I do connect with the feeling of, of being kind of done with the progressive Christian like wheel of publishing, maybe not even publishing, but just like the progressive Christian world is so small, but it also feels like the memory is so short. Like, um, I mean, right before the pandemic, I remember because I was in New York and like visiting a new church for the first time. So it was like in the three months before the pandemic started was when uh, the founder of La Arche, uh, uh-huh. John Vanier, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Yeah, you got it. Was revealed to have abused like multiple women who, with mental disabilities. Like, and he had just died and it was like, you know, it was a huge deal. And he's like, BFS with Stanley Hauerwas. And it's like, did Stanley, like, if your best friend's doing that, obviously, you're, if it's your best friend, they're not going to show you their worst side. But it's also like, this man is a really important theologian. And he was unable to see abuse happening under his nose. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to call it Hauerwas. I'm just like, I'm remembering that situation. And... <laughs> as I go to Duke. Sorry. I, um, I just remember, I'm remembering that situation and it feels like, uh, like that, the memory of that got lost really quickly because we, I mean, the pandemic happened, but also there were other allegations that came out and there were other revelations of abuse and enabling, um, like in the Willow Creek situation, like people a couple of years down the line had kind of forgotten that the Nyquists were like, Sorry, sorry to bring that up, Danielle. But like people have kind of forgotten that like these big name Christian authors who are now in the progressive world are connected to a man who's like a known abuser and we're in some ways enabling of that situation. And it's just like, I just connect with getting really tired because it's like, how do you, there's, the, it goes back to what we, when we had Hannah Bowman on the, Hannah Bowman on the pod and talking about abolition uh, it's like there's no there's no path for restorative justice and there's no path yeah. for survivors to find true justice again in in these situations and so it just seems like it, it sometimes i get very very upset because it just seems like there's no way forward like they're just going to continue to have their platform and and what can we do <laughs> sorry well, to be a downer and that's that's i'll, I'll give this is where i'll give the ya uh, ya twitter props is that shit very, very rarely happens in YA Twitter. Um, when when stuff comes out, I mean, it is kind of like salty earth, <laughs> like gone, right? Like when uh, we've had, there's been a number of YA um, authors, male authors, who have engaged in in similar behavior. And it's like, it's almost immediate. Like they lose their publishing deal. They lose their agent. Now there might be a question of, well, no, I don't know. I mean... It happens quickly, and it happens uh, again um, in a way that you know the YA community is trying to protect the fact that uh, that in, within publishing they they really take seriously the fact that they want to be the progressive kind of like uh, um, loud uh, voices 
um, for not only the kids that are reading the books, but for other authors as well to be able to like, say, we're just not going to put up with that shit. Um, now, there's certain, there's tons of other problems in there, but that's one of those places where when people, you know, it, it comes up, that that stuff has a, has a tail and it follows them forever. I mean, I can think of like three authors right now who were New York Times bestseller type authors and just are done. They're just done. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I go back and forth on that of, of like, in that realm, right? Like, is there the restorative justice kind of thing is like, how do we, I don't know. I don't, I, I feel like I'm getting onto thin ice here because what I'm trying to say is like, when, when you start talking about redemption and restorative justice, like for people who have made mistakes, doesn't mean that they need to have their platform back, but like that salted earth kind of mentality also kind of drive that, that always leads me to a place of like, man, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about engaging in that either as somebody that, you know, my 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 theology is based on, you know, and it's very important. I wrote a whole damn book about redemption. And it's like, how do we get redeemed? It doesn't mean we get our platforms back. It doesn't mean that you get to be New York Times bestselling author headlining events anymore. But should do you do you ever get a chance to kind of say you're sorry and be forgiven? Now roast me on this because I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I just I, I struggle with that. I struggle with that part of online where if somebody's name comes up, sometimes people's name come up and they've already been like cleared like they don't have anything like it's been like oh that was a mistake wrong person and it still will set off a flurry of people being like well that person did xyz and it's just like damn i was like maybe it is best just to get off and not not to ever kind of engage with that does that make sense am i am i should i just is this the part i keep feeling damn we're, we're 37 yeah, no, minutes just, and it feels like we've been podcasting connected. for two weeks <laughs> no you're good you're good it's just that you i mean i think you connected um I mean, I think I was talking more about like actual abuse and then you connected it to like internet pylons, yeah. which I don't love that. That's connection. not what I was trying to do. Yeah, I know. Sorry. No, I just wanted to make that clear. But like, I think there's a difference between internet pylons. Okay, well, here's here's the common thread I'm hearing, which is these are sort of overwhelming systemic issues happening, right? Within our culture. And we sometimes just don't know how to think about it, don't know how to react to it. You, you know, CJ, you just mentioned you guys had someone who was involved in the abolition movement on the podcast. You know, sometimes I really feel jealous of people who have like a specific lane, right? Like they do prison abolition work or, you know, there's this book I just read on uh, gun reform, right? And this person who is a, sh a shooting survivor, you know, now tries to do gun reform in really conservative spaces. And the way she keeps going, because obviously how triggering would it be to be doing that kind of work with your history and just to see mass shootings happening all the time in America and just knowing like, if nothing changes, this will keep happening. She's like, I can't end all gun violence today, but I can maybe make it happen a little less today. And I was like, man, how can I have that kind of long-term? Like, I want to do this long-term, you guys. I want to resist white Christian nationalism the rest of my life. So how do I build up the muscles to do that? I have to somehow frame that. Now, what, what the problem for me is like, I'm a freelance writer. I write some books. I want to ask people to interrogate their ideologies. Well, I don't really have any concrete ways to say like, you know, I, I have no way to uh, quantify, oh, this person maybe changed a tiny bit of their ideology because of something I said. So maybe the problem is these are just huge issues and we're overwhelmed with them and we would like a way to engage, right? Maybe again, that comes back to whiteness. For me, I just want one way to be right on the internet, to be good on the internet. And I am really afraid of being bad and the consequences of that. However, isn't this, I, I don't know where everybody's at with like 
their Christian faith. But man, there's something to this idea that repentance and confession should just be normalized. You know, just that's a part of our life moving forward. And I wish that was more a part of the you know Christian tradition I was born into. It's not, but that's a way forward I can see for myself and my family uh, with Christianity. It's like, yeah, this is just going to be part of our life. We repent when we do wrong. We make amends. We confess it to our community and our community holds us accountable. And again, taking it off some of this individualistic stuff, right? And looking more at a community. A community can call us out and a community can restore us. And it's not up to one person, right? To decide who's in and who's out and all of that stuff. I think that yeah. there is something important, like kind of deeper underneath the comment that Brian was trying to make, though, <laughs> trying, that I see trying to a lot in... Um, <laughs> Even in like our political discourse since the election, specifically around the Georgia voter laws, uh, you know. So basically, Brian, what you're talking about in in the young adult fiction world is that like they just use the market to weed out people who have been abusers. So just no one buys their books anymore, you know. And and I think that in in some ways, a similar thing is happening. Like, okay, we have these bad Georgia voter laws that you know are gonna keep uh, people of color from voting. So people are like tweeting at like the Coca-Cola company and Delta and Marvel and all these people who do business in Georgia basically saying like, hey, make use your leverage in the market to get politicians to do something different. I think that the reality ultimately is that that's still kind of like... I mean, that that's still operating on this notion that I think is a very American one, which is that justice will sort of be meted out by the whims and natural movement of the market. And, you know, there's obviously a Christian undertone there because that's, you know, the that root, that economic root is like at the heart of how we talk about sin and forgiveness. So I think that on some on some level, and this even goes back to what CJ was saying about like how the Nyquist can have somehow, and I don't even know who they are. So thankful for that. <laughs> but like somehow they're continuing to engage in the market and the hope is like, oh, well, we just need the market to like deselect them and, and salt the earth, as Brian said. And then like, we can all move on. But going back to that, that collection of the essays from Miriam Kaba, she, had, she has a great interview in that collection about Harvey Weinstein. And she's basically just like, no one can force Harvey Weinstein to take responsibility for what he did. And the idea that like the only way we can do that is through prisons is a part of what the problem is to begin with. And, and Danielle, to kind of connect something to your point, you know, we talk about repentance and forgiveness and we want that to be like the most, you know, we want that to be a commonplace thing. But I, you know, one of the things we forget is that the Bible talks about that as like the absolute hardest shit to do as human beings. Like it's not natural. And to the point to where, you know, Episcopalians are like saying that the Eucharist will like, you know, work like truth serum and just make you do it naturally or something. Like we have to resort to like almost, you know, we've talked about this on the pod before, but like how like, oh, well, liturgy will just solve the problems of communal repentance and forgiveness. So this is a big back and forth that we don't have to like go back down again. But, you know, I think that we all have that desire, but the reality is, and I, the difficult part of all of that is that it requires people being even more active in their communities than they already are. And the thing I see over and over again is people not really because they're so worn out from their job or their family life or from whatever else, like 
you know, retreating back again into the self and saying, I just don't have like the capacity to to be as involved enough to recreate these structures. So you know, I'll just beg the market to do it for me. You know, Coca-Cola, instead of like organizing protests and like resistance to these Georgia voter laws, let's just have Coke like threaten to somehow like pull their multi-billion dollar business out of a tax haven, which is why they're in Georgia to begin with. Like so yeah, I, I think that the reality is that those things are really hard. And uh, I don't know. I, I just don't think that like, because of the purity test that we can all go through and think, oh, well, I have all my ideology like synced up, then we can think that's kind of the end of the game. But without that bigger communal piece, I mean, this is like at the heart of abolition, right? You know, We don't want police because we want to be so involved in the life of our community that we're meeting the problems that create violence before they can create that violence. But that means giving of yourself in a way that our current system is just not structured to allow. Yeah. And let me just say that I was, I feel like I need to apologize. Because uh, my, my, my newly diagnosed ADHD uh, in my brain made like three different jumps before I got to where I was talking. So I was not trying to connect it to victims uh, of abuse. My, my thing is just yeah, all of it ties together. Like, it, and, and Isaac, you, you basically said uh, what I was trying to say way better, which is kind of the theme of this whole podcast is I say something and you're like, well, not really. And then I'm like, okay, I apologize. I don't want to be canceled. Yeah, that's right. Um, but it, I, it's, so anyway, I just felt like I needed to address that. So go ahead. That's the theme of every podcast episode we do, Brian. I, that's what I'm saying. That, that is like, <laughs> I, I, we've moved past me being old, the oldest person on the podcast. And now it's to like my, my shitty theology and, and, and my, my poor attempt at hot takes are coming out. And it's, I, I'm just being, I'm just being formed. Iron forms, iron, it was iron forms, iron, whatever it is. That's what's happening in this, in this podcast. I feel like you all are just preparing me for ordination even more. It's, it's going to be great. So. Just kidding. You just set yourself up for me to say that. All right, CJ, Daniel. I don't know if this is the best segue, but I will say that one of, Daniel, one of my, uh, I think one of my favorite parts of your writing is that um, like in the face of systemic injustice, you have a very clear and strong vision of the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God looks like for uh, the most marginalized people. Um, and it's actually, I was flipping through your books earlier <laughs> to prepare for this and reread the endings of both your books. And at the end of your first one, the last paragraph is talking about comparing the kingdom of God to a party and how God is welcoming us in. And the at the end of your second book, you're comparing the kingdom of God to um, to a city, just like full to the bursting with people and you know, and we're beloved like the other birds of the air, which I find, I find your understanding of the upside down kingdom really helpful in my own life because of uh, my social context, which is not like I'm just not around people who don't look like me and who aren't in my social class very often. And so, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to segue to your writing a little more, but. I, I think I'm just trying to tell you that I love your writing, and also it 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 does it does that work of unsettling me and making me uncomfortable and making me look at at people who are not who are not as privileged as I am, but also like who God is going to be championing mm-hmm. in in the kingdom, which is um, which is not generally people who look like me. You're just like the best hype person, CJ. <laughs> but it's funny because as you said that, like the second you said the kingdom of God, I actually got tears in my eyes 
because like it is really important to me and yet it's something I don't tend to think about. And this is something I do in my writing. I talk about how I wake up sad and I go through my life sad and mad at the injustices of the world. And I do a lot of work on the daily to try and not be extremely depressed and anxious, uh, you know, because I have kids to take care of all that stuff. So for me, a lot of my writing is centered in lament. I don't think I was taught how to lament as a white evangelical in the United States. And so writing for me allows me to be like, this sucks. And where is God? I was told, you know, my mom was sort of involved in the charismatic movement. And that is just a shit show of if you are right with God, things will go right for you. So you have two options, right? You can either be like, well, God's a monster or I'm something's terribly wrong with me, you know? And maybe I'm just a narcissist, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure God's the monster in this scenario. You know, if all of these people are suffering, of course, my relationship with refugees and particularly very poor women refugees has been like, there are people in this world who just suffer every day of their life. And that's what their life is like. What does that mean for me as someone who wants to believe in a loving God. And, and of course, growing up within white evangelicalism, there's all this pressure that anybody who doesn't believe like me is going to hell. And right. So the second I meet people who suffer all the time and then theologically I have to consign them to hell, it, it just it just broke me. But then scripture in you know reading scriptures, I just see a totally different portrayal of God. And I had like sort of a break with reality when I had my sec my second child, my son, because uh, I almost died in at post childbirth, so I was literally like hooked up to machines. The only reason I was alive, you know, was because I was an American and had access to all this stuff. And um, I just really didn't want to die. And that was like a terrible feeling for me. As a Christian, you're supposed to really want to go to heaven and all that stuff. So I was really struggling. And then I was, as I started to get better, I really struggled with why did I survive when so many women around the world die in childbirth, right? When how come women in Somalia die, but I lived? Like, why? Why? You know, it's, this is just the things I think about. And I had a dream, uh, one of those nights when I was in the hospital where I woke up and I was feasting at a really long table, eating like bread and fruit, and all this luscious food with all of these people. And they kind of looked familiar to me, but they kind of didn't. They didn't speak the same language as me. We're all feasting together. And then I just heard this audible voice that said, you know, this is what heaven is. In heaven, you will feast with those who have suffered the most on earth. And when I woke up, I realized I had seen all these Rohingya refugees that I had been seeing on the news who were trying to escape the, the persecution in Myanmar and no country was letting them in it. So they were dying in the ocean and dying on these boats. And, and I really feel like maybe that was from God. Maybe it was just a psychotic break. <laughs> I don't know. But just that vision has kept me going. It's just like, all of this suffering, all of all of the things my neighbors have experienced, like I just don't know that much anymore about theology. But what I do know is that I think God is love and God is a creator. And I don't think creators let their creations go into nothingness. You know, I think creators love their creation. And so that's kind of like a mantra I have with me. And that's kind of how I end my books. And it's what I try. That's what keeps me tethered to Christianity for sure. And it's just such a better way of viewing the world than I have the capacity for, you know? And that's the other thing. I'm like, I don't intrinsically have this vision of a world where everybody's flourishing. So I have to trust that comes from, that comes from God because, you know, I'm a pretty selfish 
person um, <laughs> and all that. But thank you for reminding me of just, it's important to talk with other people sometimes about these things too. I wonder if you guys, you're all Episcopalians. Is that, is that true? No, no. Isaac's saying no. <laughs> no, I'm a Methodist. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So rude of me. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Just don't, don't associate me with the queen. <laughs> oh my so I'm just interested in how like church and faith helps you with that, you know, public, we already talked about repentance and confession, but with the lament and with having a better vision for human flourishing. I mean, I, I do want to connect to something that you just said, because one of the things I really appreciate about your book is that you try to grapple with the effect that growing up in America has on our theological assumptions. And I feel like that that's not really something we can, that, that enough people sort of in, on the left of Christianity in America try to grapple with, especially around exactly what you just talked about with, which is this like vision of, you know, the kingdom or uh, what God like intends for creation when things end up horribly. And, and it's been especially triggering for me because every year around Easter, it's like, all every like Christian leftist group is like, how can I like try to deny that, the resurrection is somehow something that happens after people die. <laughs> and like, and to me, that's just something that, you know, or like, how can I just talk about how like death is this totally natural and good thing? And, and to me, that's just something that you could really only say when you are as far removed from the reality of death as any group of human beings in the history of, in the history of human beings. And, you know, so to me, it's like, okay, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, who needs to hear something about the possibility of life after death? People for whom life has just been one continual crucifixion. And do we have a picture of God that's big enough to say, God's not like satisfied with letting that be the last word about those people's lives? Like, I hope so, because folks who are like, oh, you know, give me an Easter that's like not about escapism. Like, fine. We don't have to like, let it be, you know, white evangelicals version of like golfing in heaven for eternity. But like, there better be something about this that where God is like making repair because the history of political victories against empire in the world, in the, in world history are terrible. Like people who are like, well, this is all just about like winning resurrection now. Like, I hope you're ready to get your hands dirty because that reality fucking sucks. Like, can we just be honest that that means like violent battle, like all over the world? If that's really anyway, so it just it's wild to me that American progressive Christians want to like take this one thing that politically I think is at the heart of the gospel and be like, well, that's not really like scientifically possible. So we're just done with it. And like, we want to make it so much smaller than that. And it, and I like, and I appreciate the way that your, your writing, Danielle, really makes this interrogate like, hey, maybe part of, of these assumptions uh, that we're making have to do with like where we specifically are and the culture that we're living in. And, you know, yeah, there's my two cents. I've been saving that up for a couple of weeks because I was on the phone last week. Yeah, Isaac's really been sitting on the, the resurrection tank. I know. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but like if you're if if the God if you believe in God and then you believe that God is like 
people dying at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea because they couldn't get into Europe is fine, then like your God is just as much of a monster as the sub- penal substitutionary atonement God that you hate or that you've like left that church from. So anyway, yeah, there it is. Like voting or even like revolution is not going to like pick that person's corpse up off the bottom of the ocean. So don't do away with the one thing in our religion that like says that that is going to happen. I added resurrection truther to my bio for a reason. Isaac, I don't think you're going to get much opposition here. I love this podcast. This is like, this is amazing. And um, I'm needing these conversations. My kids are terrible at talking about these things with me. So thank you guys. (laughs) Your third grader isn't thinking about the resurrection. Well, I mean, that's kind of amusing because my, one of my teenagers, uh, uh, well, my daughter, Nora, who's 17, we just had this conversation and she's like, well, it didn't like really happen though. And I was like, oh, sit down. You just ruined your whole Sunday, your whole Easter Sunday. Uh, <laughs> we have to have this talk now. <laughs> so yeah, another resurrection truther here. So uh, yeah, I will say like, I think your writing has also helped me in some way with the repentance aspect of it. Um, your first book came out the same week that I uh, arrived back in the US after my year as a missionary. And I heard about your book on Rachel Held Evans' blog. Um, so yeah, you know, shout out to Rachel Held Evans. But I I read your book like within days of arriving back in the US after a year as a missionary. And I was feeling incredibly broken about that experience. And also like my, I mean, my participation in like the project of white supremacy, right? And like the project of colonialism that is most Western missions to foreign countries. And really, so like your book was kind of a gateway into um more writing and more uh, and finding other voices uh, that were speaking to the ways that like I could productively repent of or like productively repent and like actually find ways that like weren't just self-flagellation right because it's really easy to just like for for me personally it's really easy to self-flagellate about the harm that I did or the harm that I was witness to in other countries just because of my presence like, I just don't think that I've found a ton of physical spaces in the church where like repentance like that is practiced and where we can actually re- productively repent um, and also organize to make the world better, right? Like it seems like organizing becomes a very, very separate space from places where we can, where like maybe white people can repent of like our participation in white supremacy, for example, that's what I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll pile on with the with the love of your uh, writing and your books. Uh, when I read A Simulator Go Home, it was one of the first times where I actually connected with, um, and I don't, I don't know if you would claim ex-evangelical uh, uh, transition story, but there's a lot of those. It, it always, I kind of joke that if you want to get a Christian publishing deal, all you have to do is uh, find Paul Tillich at some point and then you're going to be fine. Um, but you know, yours was the first one where it was like, oh, I get this. like Because it, it was rooted in a certain amount of integrity, which I think, is why I like you on Twitter and why you know, you've you've shown that here as well. Like there's a certain amount of integrity that your faith gave you and it came comes through in your writing and it came through in the story uh, that you were telling. And so for me, like that was one of the things for me when I was, when I read it, I was just like, oh, this is a person that I actually trust as opposed to somebody where it seems like, 
Yeah, you're, the conversion story is like, eh, I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't care about most conversion stories. Like, they're just not that interesting to me. Uh, but yours was one that felt rooted in something that I, I deeply cared about and could connect with, as opposed to I'm leaving this one place and entering this other place, which, which is fine. People love those kind of stories, but yours just had that other thing where it was, yeah, it, it felt convicted and um, kind of steeped in integrity for the work that you were doing and continue to do. So, oh, well, thank you guys so much. I do think that I, a part of like my reasoning for writing at all, it's just again, like it, you already mentioned this, Brian. It's like you have to be kind of a overly confident person to write. Um, but I did, like, I saw zero books, right? There's so many books about missionaries that are like, they're amazing. And I was like, what about the ones who failed miserably? Like, I've never read a book about that. Did not save a single soul as a missionary. I did. And you, and you know, people like Christianity Today, who I used to write for, they'd be like, okay, the elephant in the room is like, are you still trying to convert people? I'm like, yes, but I'm trying to convert you. <laughs> like, not my neighbors. Like, I'm trying to convert y'all. Um, y'all train me, you know, to do this work. And so there's that. And so, um, you know, I'm definitely going to take a break for that. My next book is on Dorothy Day. And it's so fun to not write about myself. And it's not my subculture. And yet there's like so many amazing resonant questions and things to think about when she started her work in the 1930s, in the midst of, you know, the Great Depression, all that. So I'm like, that's been really fun. But I still have on my radar, like, what kind of books do we not have right now? What's not out there? And here's where I'm seeing you guys feel free to chime in if you see like a little gap. But I was just listening to a podcast called Heaven Bent, and it comes out of Canada and like the Canadian Broadcasting Network, like so legit stuff. And it's looking at the charismatic movement of like the 90s and up to current. And so the first season was all on this thing called the Toronto Blessing. My mom was really into that stuff. And then this season is all about Bethel Church in Reading. And and it's just really interesting to have a Canadian like journalist like go into the charismatic world. And I actually started like sobbing while listening to it while walking around my neighborhood. And I emailed like the lady who made it. I was like, I'm so sorry. Like I just want to tell you, I can't stop crying. She's like, you would not believe how many people have reached out to me and said that because there's zero spaces to process charismatic Christianity because like the rest of the world will just be like, you are in a cult, full stop. Like that, all of that is bonkers, banana town. And yet for those of us who are in it, you're like, I need more than that. I need you to do more than just tell me it was bonkers. Like it's a part of my life. So that's just been on my radar. Like we need to help people process the power dynamics within charismatic charismatic Christianity and how damaging they are and point people towards like Christian mysticism, which is not just a white person thing, right? That's in so many different uh, cultural traditions. And I just feel like people have a hunger to talk about the weird things of God, like the mystical side of God and like white Christian evangelicalism has just screwed it up royally by conflating it with power and prosperity gospel. So sorry, that was a, that was a tangent. But that was just something I was thinking about. Yeah, I didn't know Canadians went to church. Just <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing to have like this sort of yeah different voice on it. Sounds very polite. It is pretty polite, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish she would yell more about people like Sean Foyt, but she's a Canadian oh. polite journalist, so she she. And that's the thing, though, about Christianity is like. Sometimes it's just enough to let the words and stuff speak for itself. It doesn't always need a ton of 
Mm -hmm. just bad, just how it is. So anyways. I was going to say, speaking of Sean Foyt, do we want to start open the fight corner? <laughs> yes. I've been waiting for this. So yes, please. Uh, did you have a point to make, Isaac, before we... No, no, I think I think it's the perfect time. So, well, so I'll let you choose, Danielle, because I was going to put Dave Ramsey in the fight corner because I don't like him. But I also know <laughs> that you have a very public beef with Sean Foyt. So would you... Okay, I have beasts with so many people. <laughs> you it's do. hard to which choose I, which one. I love. Can we I, please do Dave Ramsey? Let's do Dave Ramsey. Yeah. Okay. That was my original plan. And here's the thing. I think I could take Dave Ramsey, but <laughs> the man has pulled a gun on people yeah. before. And that's yeah. what worries me about inviting him to the fight corner. So, sir, you may... You may meet me in the Denton Chili's parking lot, but you must come unarmed. It is only these guns. No, no object lessons allowed. <laughs> no, for, no, for the listeners, CJ held up his arms and, uh, you know, those are the guns. In there. I mean, I'm local enough that Dave Ramsey really could meet me in a Chili's parking lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I can, get, I can get to East Tennessee in like a day. So, I mean, I could make it local for him if that works for his schedule. But he's got enough money. He can fly to DFW. I mean, I think... It goes without saying that Dave Ramsey is a terrible person, but for purposes of the fight corner, <laughs> his financial system, he's, he's most famous for Financial Peace University. There's also a youth group version called Generation Change, which I have done twice as, a, as a youth. And it did permanently fuck my like understanding of finances to the point where I only got a credit card like this year. And it was like almost impossible for me to get an apartment in New York because you have to have a credit score. And I didn't have a credit score because I'd never had like a credit card or a loan or whatever, which is like both a privilege, but also like I could not get an apartment without like a thousand hoops in New York City. So the whole thing about Dave Ramsey's like financial system is that you should never have like debt is super bad. You should never have debt and you should pay it off like slowly, like starting with the biggest debts. And then like, I think, I don't know, I've never done it. And neither of my parents. <laughs> so this is just like all third hand knowledge, but like, it's basically like, you're going to snowball and you like, you eat rice and beans until you save up the money until you're out of debt or whatever. It's very pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but it doesn't account for like the entire economic system of the United States being based in, in debt, right? Like in, and in housing debt and car debt and student debt. And so like, that's bad enough. And then Dave Ramsey is a terrible person. It just hates poor people. And so he takes the financial piece university and is just like, and if you can't get out of debt, it's kind of your own fault. And he just like verbally abuses people on the internet. This is mostly a summary for anyone who's like, well, I don't know, Dave Ramsey seems kind of nice. He's not, you shouldn't like him. <laughs> and he, he is welcome to meet me in the Chili's parking lot. But, uh, Oh, let's open the floor. Anyone else? He he is he he engages in. He's a, more of a fiction writer than I am. I mean, he like his th part of his thing is too is like find an apartment where an old lady needs you to mow their lawn and will let you stay there for free. It's like that doesn't exist. Like Dave Ramsey, you live in a fictional universe. Like that does not exist anymore. And pay off your student loans, which you shouldn't have taken out because your parents should have been better with their money. He is all he deals in shame primarily and predominantly. And even his thing of like, the thing that drives me nuts is my wife and I tried to do this a couple of times back when we were making no money and just were super poor. And the first thing is save $1,000 as quickly as you can. Well, we did six months of trying to save $1,000, got to like 800 and then our car broke down. So then we were back down to 300. And so there's fundamentally a thing of like, of like if you were living in, we were not 
we were close to the poverty line, actually, at that point. But if you're living anywhere near that, you you fundamentally can't do that. This is like that bullshit budget that McDonald's put out like 10 years ago, if you all remember that, where it was like, you know, rent for $600, a car payment for 150 And it's like, this is just, but in, while also working two full-time jobs, they operate in this way of, of, where it does make sense for somebody like who in my kind of financial state now, like I could, we could do financial peace university and it'd probably be really helpful for us, mm-hmm. but it actually doesn't help people who are struggling because it makes them feel shameful for the fact that they can't do it because it's presented as this thing of like, this is how God wants you to um, use your money. And if you can't do that, then what's wrong with you? Like you said. So yeah, so you ruined uh, my life in a m- number of different ways when we were, uh, when we really needed uh, some support. So Dave Ramsey, I'm going to join CJ for the, first time. I don't like the guy. I don't, God. Well, so I'm confused. Do we like join you in this fight if we want to fight him or can't? Okay. I mean, if you've got beef, you can, this is, this was mostly a bit that I started when I invited my personal bishop from growing up to fight me in a Chili's parking lot. So the rules are are iffy. Well, I don't want to like fight Dave Ramsey. I am going to come at him at his own game. And I am planning to start a call-in radio show where people just call in and they talk about how Dave Ramsey's plan did not work for them and how the American economic system as it is, is failing them miserably and they are drowning in debt. And people are just going to call in with their sad, sad stories and we're all going to listen and we're just going to lament and we're going to commiserate. And that's how we're going to take him down because the thing that's so damaging about him, not only does he hate poor people and he does not believe in systematic inequality in the United States when it comes to wealth disparity, which means like, like how much history <laughs> does he o- overlook with that? He, he actively is training people to believe the same thing. He is training middle-class people and aspiring middle-class people to actively hate people in poverty and to blame them as a result of their individual feelings. So I got to come for Dave. And the way I think would be the best way to do it is just to have all the people who've been really damaged by his program show up on the show. I do want to say, while we're here in the fight corner, if people want to budget their money, they should do that. And you can just get an app on your phone and budget and then don't do anything. It's very don't do, yeah. Don't do anything with Dave Ramsey because he baptizes all of this with Christian language. Um, I would say like if if we want to do a budgeting class inside a church building, it should not be Financial Peace University, and it should just be a bunch of people who sit around and tell each other like, "How are you giving away your money this week?" That's what we need more in churches. I agree. And I also think what's so insidious about Dave Ramsey is that he is so pervasive. He's in like every Christian church you've ever been in. You know why? It's because he tells people like, don't give to charity. Don't do any of that stuff. Eat rice and beans. The one thing you have to do is give 10% of your money to your local church. Mm. Y'all, it is a like, reciprocal system that feeds off of the hatred of poor people and a dismissal of unjust economic systems. And it's, it's gross. Yeah, he literally says in his like main book that America is the richest country on earth because we're the most biblical and God has blessed us. So like there is no such thing as like systemic injustice or economic injustice. It's just you. You're the problem. And your Starbucks that you buy once a month yeah. is really the problem. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the one yeah. treat you allow yourself in the mob to capitalism. get through your day. Yeah. <laughs>
he is welcome to fight me in the Chili's parking lot and in his recovery, listen to the Colin show. Yeah. We're, <gasps> oh, good. That'd be great. I say we can also add, we can add some mutual aid to that. So we can really just screw with him just uh, and, and just make sure that everybody else pays everybody else's debt off. So it's not no longer a personal thing. So uh, there you go, Dave. <gasps> debt snowball, but for oh, communities. Oh is. my gosh. Yeah, that, that oh my gosh. there it is. Let's go. <laughs> That's Speaking of, and just as a side note to any rich Episcopal churches out there, you can buy other people's medical debt and forgive it, and you should be doing so. Trinity Wall Street with your six million dollar endowment. All right, yeah, billion, billion. You said six. million. Oh, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. What? <laughs> Trinity Wall Street? I can't get into it. I can't. I mean, I can't engage. I will get. I will get in trouble. <laughs> we'll text about it. Mm-hmm. I have a six billion dollar endowment. Because all the worst people in the world go to their church. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not an Episcopal because then that would be really annoying to me. But today I'm just going to let it roll off my back and just be my little non-denominational <laughs> There's so many specific ways that being Episcopalian has screwed me. <laughs> and yet somehow it's oh. the best place for me. Um, well, I think that's about it for the fight quarter. I mean, we've covered... The, wor- the worst sons of Dave Ramsey. But Danielle, is there anything you want to plug before we we wrap up? Um, I just want to cast my net wide. If anybody out there is listening and you like Dorothy Day, I again, I'm, I'm finishing up my manuscript on her. I'm just really jazzed to talk about her and find a bunch of weirdos who want to talk about a woman, you know, who lived 100 years ago. So if that's something interesting to people, you know, just keep me on your radar. 2022, May Day, you know, May Day is like the day we celebrate unions and organized labor. Like, let's get into it. I'm, I'm not an expert at any of these things. Sometimes I feel like progressive, like even listening to all y'all talk, I'm like, oh, I know nothing about abolition. I know nothing about unions, organizing. I'm like, come join me. I'm just learning. And it's really great to learn about some of these things. I don't, I just, I don't know anything either. It's, it's fine. I'm just here to learn. <laughs> me and Brian are here for the common people. <laughs> and just, I love I'm, it. We're I'm just, just here to make jokes, know. just to make jokes. And, <laughs> all of, and, and all oh. of the union history I know is literally like West Virginia minor union history where they well, were like, awesome. Localized cops love in the hills. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh, we so, should definitely come back on and talk about Dorothy Day. Yeah. yeah she's be awesome. the coolest. She would love your shirt, Isaac, that you're wearing. Isaac is wearing a, a shirt by Ben Wildflower, which, oh my yeah, gosh, I'm not sure I should say this publicly, but I think Ben Wildflower is doing the cover for my book. I conscripted Whoa. him to do a picture of Dorothy smoking a cigarette because I don't want all the white ladies to just buy my book. You know what I mean? So you got to do something to throw them off the scent. Like, got to okay. get edgy. Yeah. You got to get the cigarette in there. So, yeah. That's I'm so excited. I think I Canceled. did I read a, like a super early draft of that at that writing workshop. Oh yes. We, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean I remember being excited about it even then, and I can only imagine that you're much more excited about it now. But do you remember how everybody who read that was like, "This is not Dorothy Day," and that was my first foray into like, "Oh, when you write about a beloved person, like the Catholics are going to come for me, y'all." Um, it's going to be interesting. So, so buy Danielle's book so that the Catholics, so that the trads get mad. Oh, trads get mad. That's going to be my hashtag. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so, 
Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Maybe that's what we should have named the podcast. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> hey, you can always rebrand. We can do that. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, if we do get canceled, we'll just rebrand. <laughs> as Trans- 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 <laughs> I, that's the classic pivot. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you so much for coming on, Daniel. Yeah, Thank you so Daniel. much for having me. This has been really fun. <laughs>